Hey everyone, wherever you are, I hope you're having a wonderful week so far. We're here with the latest episode of the Inside Crypto Show, interviews and discussions with regular people just like yourselves. Today we are joined by somebody very special and definitely not a regular guest, Emmanuel Daniel, who is a global thought leader in the future of finance. He's an entrepreneur, writer, and is listed as a top 10 global influencer in the FinTech Power 50 list for 2021 and 2022. Emmanuel, thank you so much for making time with us today. Let's talk a little bit about your background for those of you who might not be familiar with who you are. Hi, I was born in Malaysia and I spent my entire adult life in Singapore. I moved to Singapore to complete my university and then the rest of my career was mostly Singapore. From Singapore, I built a global banking research and consulting company called Tap Global. And in the Asia Pacific region, we are known for a publication that I started in 1996, which today has become the defining publication for the banking industry. And I started it as a publication because that was the easiest way to go out there and meet people in the industry. Uh, I'm not from banking at all, but now I've spent like 28 years in the banking industry. And my best friends are the chairmen, the CEOs of some of the more prominent banks in all the major countries around the world, including the US. And that gave me the kind of the key to travel as I liked and understand entire countries. Actually, I, I studied to be a lawyer and then I didn't become a lawyer. That's the last thing I wanted to become, spent 10 years after graduating to figure out uh, what exactly I wanted to do. And then the publication idea presented itself. I was in consulting for a long time and the publication idea presented itself. And through publication, I built the research and then the consulting in the banking industry. And today we are practically worldwide. We have offices in Singapore, Dubai, Beijing, and, and also in London. Uh, and we're doing things in the US right now. So in that way, it, it has grown dramatically. And if you ask me if there's one industry that I understand intuitively, it's banking. And a lot of the ideas that I have to discuss with you come from having put it in focus in my book, which is the transition that the banking industry is making from its traditional moorings to the challenges that it's facing from technology, cryptocurrencies, and decentralized finance. When you spend as much time as I have in the banking industry, making that transition has been a very difficult journey. I had to keep faith with the industry that I understood and then yet challenge it to the new frontiers that it's facing. And so what I'm saying to the banking industry is that, that it will change fundamentally. And that is why the title of my book is The Great Transition. The personalization of finance is here, meaning that finance is going to be or is already on a transition from it's institutional moorings. That means the large banks that dominate the intermediation business towards personalization, where the individual has greater power than the institution in his or her transactions and relationships. Because the dimensions that I have are always much larger than banking, I came to the conclusion that as finance evolves and is transformed and becomes increasingly personalized, society itself will become increasingly personalized. And then I gave a lot of thought to how that transition will work its way through. And it's everything from macro, which is if you take something like the existing world order in the financial infrastructure, the role of the dollar, for example, as the dominant currency, and, and China, which is where I am right now, and does it present a challenge to the existing world order and will that change? And then how that will evolve over time. And then also on the technology front, 
I'm actually telling the technology players that the platform industry that, that all of us have become familiar with and comfortable with is itself going through a transition. And it's actually the transition of the platform industry towards greater personalization that is transforming the banking or the finance industry. And one of the problems I've had in writing this book and sharing my thoughts and, and getting the feedback of people in both the technology and the finance industry is that the people in the platform industry refuse to believe that their industry is going through a transition. If I tell the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world that the foundations aren't hard, that they are wobbly, they, they don't believe that. They think they will continue to dominate. And so I tell them that, remember the time when Facebook formed in about 2007, didn't make the transition to mobile in 2010. It, was, it started off as a desktop application and it didn't make that transition to mobile naturally. In fact, it was the Chinese players like WeChat and Alipay that became native to mobile. And then I'm saying to them, guess what? Mobile now is becoming increasingly three-dimensional through the metaverse and so on. And on top of that, it's no longer device dependent as we go into IOTs and Internet of Things and so on. And just as I had published in the book, which was published in 2022, right, last year. And in just a few months after that, ChatGBT had brought in this whole upheaval in the platform industry. That is that the current dominant players are not going to be dominant anymore. And then there's a state of play underway. So there's a lot to offload on the ideas that I've built in the book. And it's quite interesting to see the interest that it's got from different players. And I think that the biggest interest that I've got was from the blockchain and the crypto industry, strangely enough. And I guess why I'm having this conversation with you. Definitely a lot of interest. And oh my God, you said a lot of stuff. And I guess one of the coolest things is like when we were setting up this meeting and I was talking to your agent, I was like, oh, wow. So he travels a lot. And that's something like I used to travel a lot and it definitely gives you a different perspective. So going back to you starting off way back in 1996, starting the publication, getting involved with the banking industry. And I guess my question to you is like totally off script is what was that spark of change that is making the banking industry change today? the way it is changing? I guess the first question you need to ask me is why did I choose the banking industry? I wasn't from banking and, and I knew nothing about banking when I started in 1996. I just knew that I needed to build a theme and a large team and a team that dominates society. Governments was a possible team, but uh, I think in a lot of the East Asian countries that we live in, Singapore and Taiwan and Korea and so on, governments wasn't a way that a publisher or a consulting person could make a living from. The largest other industry that I consider to be a cathedral industry. So I consider finance and banking to be a cathedral industry, meaning that if you go into any city or any country, that's the largest industry in that country. And it's an industry just like a cathedral, which in involves people's lives from the time they're born to the time they die. So I like banking industry because in the early days of covering the banking industry, and also we make money from the banks themselves, we also make money from the technology companies that sell to the banks. And all of them talk about innovation and transformation and all that. They use all these cliche phrases. By the time I started writing the book, and this was like 10 years ago, it took me a long time to come to terms with where the industry really was. I made a distinction between what you would call industrialization of finance and digitization of finance, and they're two different things. So a lot of the innovations that the industry was talking about for all the early years from 1996 to 2010 and so on, 2020 maybe, what the banks meant was that they were industrializing what they were already doing. So there was nothing new. The products remained the same. In fact, 
one of the points I say in my book is that if the products don't change, nothing changed. And then you scratch your head and you say, what products are there to change in banking? There's mortgages, there's deposits. And so I say to them exactly that. Uh, look at your deposit product today. Imagine a time when banks don't sell deposits anymore. They scratch their heads and say, really? Then I said, look at the numbers. The, the digital wallet industry is as big as the deposit industry today and is going to be twice the size in the next five years or so. And in the digital wallet industry, electronic money is one component, but then digital assets is the other component, which then gives you access into a lot of the new network communities that are being created. There is no reason to think that the deposit industry will evolve. Now, now, these are incredibly unthinkable thoughts in banking right now. And then I tell the banking industry that, look, look at what Kodak did, okay? In 1995, Kodak practically invented the digital camera, but it loved its 35 yellow box film, physical film so much that it continued to sell that, maintain its distribution network for physical films right into the 2000s and until the time it went bankrupt in 2010. And there's no reason to think that deposits will become the least profitable and even defeating product set in the banking industry. So in that way, I'm actually telling the banking industry that if the products don't change, nothing changed. And there's a big difference between industrializing the processes, meaning doing the same thing more, better, faster, and in a greater quantity than making a fundamental change in the business model of banking and their role with the people that they consider to be customers. That was a pretty difficult journey for myself because I make a living from the, this industry and I needed to be very clear where that transformation was coming from. And for that, I had to look to what was happening in the crypto space. And the thing that really attracts me uh, about the crypto space is not so much the price of cryptos and the fluctuating value of cryptos. In fact, that's a distraction. It's act when you take any one of the layer one cryptos, or Solana or, or Bitcoin or Ethereum and so on, it's the hundreds and thousands of programmers who are working around applications around layer one, layer two cryptos. This is unprecedented in the world of technology and that this transformation is being funded on each of these tokens. I think that we are seeing a fundamental change in the way in which we build applications, we create utilities, interconnectedness and so on. And that's going to transpose back into the physical world, the institutional world that banking is today. Okay. And very good point. One of the things we talked about on like last week's episode was we had our head of legal on and he mentioned, especially in the States, and maybe this might have a knock-on effect of the unbanking of crypto companies, right? Where the government legislation is encouraging banks to say, hey, you should stop doing business with crypto. How does that connect with what you've been saying is that banks are actually, they know that change is coming, but at the same time, they can't work with the change because legislation prevents them from doing that. So I'm following all the developments taking place around the world very closely, and especially in the US. In fact, the foreword to my book was written by Barney Frank. He's a co-author of the Dodd-Frank Act, which regulates the banking industry in the US right now. It's a huge piece of legislation, and I'm glad to say that Barney is a dear friend of mine. You should even read the foreword that he wrote. And to be honest, Barney and I are not necessarily in agreement about everything because his views on banking are traditional 
know, but there is this fierce debate taking place in the US between the different agencies, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Treasury, the state finance departments, and so on, and the other regulators, the OC, the SEC, and so on. And as this debate builds on itself, there are a few themes that are shaping how cryptos will evolve and how decentralized finance will become mainstream eventually. So you've got to peel the pieces layer by layer to be able to capture what's actually happening. There are issues taking place at a global level, which is if you take the issue of dominant currency, the operating principle of dominant currency is not strength of currency. It, no, the US dollar is not the dominant currency because it's strong. In fact, it missed the step in 1971, when it couldn't continue being packed to the price of gold. And what did the U.S. do? They, they de-packed and they floated their currency and went out and influenced all other countries to float their currencies in the open market. And then to let currencies take a value which was based on trade, on investment and supply and demand. And that's it, nothing else. Uh, and then on top of that, it continued to grow to issue incredibly more debt than the economy is able to pay. Like today, debt being generated in the U.S. economy is about $30, $30 trillion, and uh, the GDP is only $20 trillion, $21 trillion. So the ability to pay is today a moot point. But then there's a there will be a sense of desperation to continue to extend the utility of the dollar into the future. And it's being attacked on every front. Many of the central banks have started selling U.S. Treasury bonds and deleveraging their economies from the dollar as much as they can, and then trying to find bilateral relationships with each other. Now, how will the U.S. react to that? Again, out of desperation, it will plug on to digital finance because that's the fastest way to continue seeing the dominance of the dollar into the future. And it could do it in any one of different ways. It could regulate stable coins to dollar-based stable coins much more strongly and then internationalize that. It could just legalize Bitcoin and all that. So... The U.S. is a country which, you know, is very conservative until there's an inflection point and then it makes a breakthrough into something else. So we need to understand how some of these changes have taken place in the past and then look for the trends that will dictate the future. Now, the fact that there is discussions in the U.S. to not allow banks to take on crypto transactions, that's already happened in many different countries around the world, except for the U.S. In fact, my own bank account is American to be able to do my crypto transactions because my Singapore bank account doesn't allow me to. And I think most countries around the world have restrictions on buying crypto or trading in crypto using your fiat bank account. They will consider it but there's also a big pushback in the U.S. from the liberal left that they don't trust government and therefore conclusions are not necessarily a foregone thing. So the state of play is still there. The dynamics are exactly as they have been in previous transitions that the U.S. economy has made. And, uh, and I think that the overriding theme is that the U.S. always decides in favor of a liberal regime and less government rather than more. Around the world, funnily enough, it was because of COVID that governments started to feel that they were competent. And last year alone, I think I probably traveled to 20 countries as poor as Burundi in Africa and then Paraguay in South America and so on. And I was impressed how even the most dysfunctional countries could have a COVID monitoring regime in place. So you land at the airport, they have uh, checks, and then they have apps where you can register and so on. And I think that generally, globally, 
Uh, right now, governments think of themselves as being competent and therefore they have the courage and the confidence to look at other things that they can control. And I think that cryptocurrencies and even, in fact, the advent of central bank digital currencies gives that sense that something we can control the economy better than the private sector can. And it's this battle between the private enterprise and the state that is at play at the moment. And I think that the way technology itself evolves, technology is ruthless. It doesn't take prisoners. In other words, if your business, you can be Google and when there's a breakthrough in technology, your history. And so governments underappreciate this element in technology. So when I put a stable coin next to a central bank digital currency, what I see is that the amount of energy that goes into creating applications around stable coins. There are solutions looking for a problem, meaning that here you've got a technology that is ready to be used. And what is the problem? You're going to disintermediate your own banks by issuing a currency directly between the central bank and the end user. Let's try this proposition. And then they go out and they backtrack and they start giving reasons why they will still need to use the existing banking industry to use the central bank digital currencies and currency. Uh, and then shortly, they'll be scratching their heads and saying, why did we need this in the first place? And by the time you will see that the stable coins and cryptos would have gone way down the road, further down the road. In fact, I keep saying this in the people I'm talking to these days, that look at the BIS, the Bank for International Settlement, which is the, the central bank of all central banks, the place where all central banks come to meet and they know each other from that community. It's a very interesting community where whether you're American central bank, the Federal Reserve Bank, or New Zealand or Singapore, all the central bankers meet there and they fall over themselves to outdo each other in themes that they've decided that they enjoy. So in the past, for example, why do all central banks keep their inflation targeted at 2% because this is a formula that the New Zealand Central Bank introduced about 20 years ago oh, and wow. it just became between all the central banks. So now the big theme is central bank digital currencies. Now, the point here is this, that the BIS issued a paper in December last year outlining what they understood to be cryptocurrencies and setting the stage for central banks to take on cryptocurrencies as part of their balance sheet from 2025. So there is thinking already underway at the central bank of central banks level saying that, you know what, we need to keep a watch on the development of this asset class. And there's no reason why a central bank shouldn't carry that. So it's a dynamic state of play and, and it's the technology that will drive acceptance and, and, and the physical model or the infrastructure that will carry finance into the future. Nice. I think you, you just helped a lot of people feel more comfortable because I know with everything that happened in 2022, FTX, 3AC, Luna, a lot of people in crypto were like, okay, we've got so far. 2020 was amazing. And then 2022 happened. And, you know, people are worried, like, is this going to be the end of cryptocurrency? But as you mentioned, like the Bank of International Settlements, 2025 is, that's two years away. If at the top, they're deciding, let's implement this in two years, and then it's going to filter all the way down. And that's hope for the future. There, there are two things that people don't understand or don't appreciate about crypto. Firstly, the value of crypto is not in the valuation. It's not the Ponzi part of the crypto economy. They call it tokenomics, right? Yes. Which is the economics around the value of crypto. The value of crypto is that, and I say this again and again, is that you, you know, or I can issue our own crypto. That's the magic of crypto. And that anyone in the world, I can, I've actually, I'm actually talking to someone to issue my own crypto just for fun <laughs> to say that I can. 
right? Now, then the question is, when I float it, will it be accepted? Will it be transacted? Will it be interoperable? So those are the things that I will need to be concerned with, you know, to bring life to a crypto that I have organized or put together. Now, what that does is change the way we look at money or change the way in which we look at value that's created and transmitted and shared and accepted. We've only gone through the first phase where because anyone can issue a crypto, the early players, there are bad actors and there are stupid actors, meaning what Sam Bankman-Fried did was stupid, not just bad. He did all the same mistakes that issuers of other securities have done in the past, which is put it out there, it was accepted by the market, then he leveraged it, getting a loan from his own bank. And then when there's a fallout, when there was not enough liquidity in the marketplace for his own asset, it crashed. And then it also crashed other cryptos and so on. This is such a regular story, even in the fund management industry and the securities industry. So there's nothing new on that front. The element to put your finger on and to track is that the technology itself is robust. It continues to do what it said it will do or it's supposed to do. It didn't break and that is taking us into new applications and so on. So that is a continuing tale. Now, as I was writing my book, was that in traditional banking, there are elements which I consider to be best practice in banking. For example, the most profitable banks in the world are not the banks that had a strong loans book. The most profitable banks in the world were banks that had a strong deposit base, a liability space. The cheapest liability space helped them to be able to lend more profitably. The margins were better. In any country, it was the old banks with a greater customer base and a lower cost of funds that were successful. And then you look at why they had a lower cost of funds is because they were closer to the community, the local community. And then even during COVID, I was going around uh, the world looking at different models in banking. And then I came across community currencies in Africa. I came across play to earn in, in uh, Philippines. And then, of course, I, I'd always known about the Grameen Bank community lending model in Bangladesh and so on. And then I came to the realization it's the banking system that is closest to its local community and keeping faith with the local community that is the most sustainable. And the same rule will apply in the crypto space, which is the cryptos that are closer to their own community and keep faith with that community and create applications that are useful to that community. That's the crypto that's going to be successful going forward. So I'm looking for those themes transitioning from traditional banking to the future. Great, nice. Emmanuel, you've made a lot of good points. And for those of you who are listening on the podcast, right, you can actually see your book sitting right behind you yeah. in the corner of the great transition. Yes. The funny thing is this, that I have a photo of a picture of an ice cube here, right? So what I'm saying as an introduction to the book is that just think about the ice trade. In 1750, there were people who were making lots of money sawing ice out of the lakes out of Michigan and, and Boston and Norway and so on and bringing it into the city. And how did they do that? They put it on horse-drawn carriages and, and took it into the city. That's how ice was carried thousands of miles. And with all that wastage, and they had to figure out how to put on sawdust and stuff. And what is ice today? It's something that you manufacture in your refrigerator at home. And what made that difference? It was refrigeration, right? And it was, I call it CFC, which is chlorofluorocarbon, which helped us to be able to create a synthetic chemical to absorb heat and allow ice to freeze. And that's what I mean by the personalization of finance. Finance 
the money in your pocket is not money that has to swirl around the world, be subject to inflation and exchange rates and bank fees and fraud and all that before it reaches you. It's something that you can generate yourself when you want it and where you want it in the amount that you want it and then to figure out how it's going to be accepted. So that's how I capture the idea of personalization. And then when I think about CFC, I'm thinking, what is the CFC of finance? What is the operating tool? What are the operating tools in finance? Identity, non-repudiation, value being transacted, interoperability and all that. Then that's how I build the theme. And when talking about the future of finance, I'm looking for how each of these themes are evolving with new technology. Nice. And I mean, beyond this book, right, I was told you might be coming out with a new book, The Winning Civilization, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm working on that. And actually, I've been traveling quite a lot and I will continue to travel in the foreseeable future. The thing about traveling is that you start to see themes that are common between countries that have nothing to do with each other. For example, I mean, I'm in China right now and in Rwanda, I visited the grave of the 250,000 people who were killed during the Rwandan genocide in 94. If you visited Rwanda today, it's a modern country. The streets have zebra crossings where, you know, when someone stands at the zebra crossing, the cars actually stop. The road from the airport to the hotel is tree-lined. They call it the Singapore of Africa. And you scratch your head and you say, what made this difference? And, well, I had the same experience in Ghana. I asked the local Ghanans, they said, why do, you know, your economy is not doing too well. Why aren't the people in turmoil? Why isn't there a military coup and so on? And the answer that came to me was because we had seen the difference, because we've seen the alternative. And what was the alternative? In Ghana, in Rwanda, in China, in China, they had the Cultural Revolution. And it was because of the Cultural Revolution that the next generation of Chinese said to themselves, this will never happen again. And they set themselves out to bring economic progress to the entire country in a way that's never been thought of before. And they succeeded. And so did the Rwandans. And so did the Ghanaians. Okay, they built a political system that today they don't kill each other. They actually go to, to elections and so on. So there are themes like that, that define who we are and define the operating principles by which countries progress. I'm not a big fan of geopolitics, because geopolitics is about grandstanding which means that it's either you or me. And this either you or me is exactly what discredits the person thinking that way from being able to make a rational choice about how the future of any country should go. So if you ask a lot of Americans, they say, oh, China has got all this trouble and therefore it does not succeed. If you ask Chinese, they will look at the US and say, oh, what a dysfunctional country that is. <laughs> and yet I, who spend time in both countries, understand the essence of both countries. And I don't grandstand to, to make a conclusion about what will take the country into the future. But in the same way that I've written my book, The Great Transition in Finance, I apply that to nation building and then put down the elements that countries have to go through. So China has an issue with, with governance from the grassroots up. And the US is interesting because it is at the frontier of the information industry. It's ruthless in that it is transparent about, its, about information symmetry is complete. All of the different players have access to the same information. 
uh, and competition is ruthless. So therefore, it looks dysfunctional, but that's exactly what enables the US to create a lot of the frontier industries that leads the rest of the world. And the country pays a price for being what it is. And then China is a great implementation country, so it looks smarter because it implements much easier, much faster than a liberal democracy. And so these are the themes that I look at. And then I come to some conclusions in the winning civilization that I hope that people will enjoy and get a sense of how to make sense of what it takes for a country to take advantage of the new technologies and opportunities to leap forward. The nice thing about being in China is this, that there are many developing countries around the world that wish that they were a China, meaning that in 30 short years, they can scale the country up to a very high level of infrastructure and self-sufficiency. But of course, it comes with a price. And like that, there are things to learn and the things to look out for. Issues like why China hasn't made breakthrough in microchip technology. Then I look at the industry itself and how competitive it's been over the last 20 years, how capital is applied and how best practices are actually not geography-centric. In other words, the chip industry, the revolution in the industry is actually global. It starts in the morning in Silicon Valley. It moves on to Taiwan, China, Singapore, back to the UK, and then back to the US and so on. So countries that want to succeed in the future have to figure out how to make sense of the global supply chain, not just of production, but also intellectual capital. So things like that. Yeah, I'm excited about the next book and I hope that it will interest a lot of people. I just got my copy of The Great Transition, I think a week ago or something. So I haven't had a chance to finish it. I'm hoping I'm going to be traveling to India on Saturday. So I'm hoping to finish it when I'm on vacation there. And I'm looking forward to touching on the winning civilization once I get a chance. Emmanuel, you, it is late our time, right? Because it is almost 10 p.m. and you've got other things to do. You've given us a very nuanced approach. I think that's what I want to highlight on today's podcast and videos. A lot of people come on this show and they're either this way or that way. And you've touched on both ways and a lot of different issues, which is something I really appreciate. And I just want to give you like the last chance today's show. Anything else you want to mention or plug, sort of discuss to leave our viewers with? You've given us a lot of wisdom already. Any sort of last words you want to leave us with? And thank you very much for asking me the questions. And actually, by asking me these questions, you gave me the chance to outline the most important of my thinking, I guess. That's why I really appreciate the opportunity to cry. And my thinking is evolving. And in fact, on my blog page, emmanueldaniel.com, I put out new material as I'm thinking them, test them, see what the feedback is and so on. So emmanueldaniel.com also has the information on my books. That's where to interact with me. And I enjoy in interacting with people who disagree with me or see something other than what I see. Perfect. Yes. And I found that website as well when I was researching for the show. So nice. It's a very cool website you have. I'll put all of these down in the show notes. So if you're listening, you've made it to the end of today's podcast, make sure you click that note, check out Emmanuel Daniel's links. He's on LinkedIn, his Twitter, the website will be there. Have a look at the book if you're interested in reading something. I've enjoyed so far. I'm not quite finished there, but I'm enjoying it so far. And hopefully we can chat again, maybe when you have more time and you're back to Beijing side of the world, maybe in a few months. Crying, thank you so much. Thank you too. You take care, Emmanuel, and uh, good luck with the rest of the evening.